This week on About South, we're talking to Jenny Lightwise Goff, award-winning author of Blood at the Root, Lynching is American Cultural Nucleus. We talked to Jenny in her home in New Orleans, where she explained her latest research on why it is important to imagine cities in the South and why we need to stop generalizing the South as a rural landscape. Jenny also discusses New Orleans' decision this summer to remove the Confederate memorials, which, as we've seen the last week, has set off an avalanche of the memorials coming down. Jenny explains what this moment means and what we need to do to imagine the next best steps. Everything about this episode was a pleasure to record, and we're happy to bring it to you today. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. start by asking you to talk about your work with city exceptionalism Mm -hmm. and for our listeners who don't who've never heard the phrase city exceptionalism Mm -hmm. who don't know what that is maybe explain what people mean by that term and how does city exceptionalism impact the way people view New Orleans okay so I think there are four exceptionalisms that are essentially American politics there's American exceptionalism, the notion that we're the most virtuous place uh, endowed with a, a mission to civilize the world. There's Southern exceptionalism, the notion that the only place that exists in resistance to all of that virtue is the South, so we can quarantine our social problems here. Slavery in the 19th century, HIV illness in the 21st century. Um, then I think there's urban exceptionalism, which is a notion that cities are somehow powerfully different than the regions in which they're placed. Uh, Cities are presumed to be the only places that can sustain the lives of marginalized people. And then I think finally there's New Orleans exceptionalism. The sense that New Orleans is so different from the region and the nation um, that no kind of uh, stable connections can be drawn to it and any other place. Um, And we quarantine a lot of social social problems here as we do in the South, quarantining our vulnerability to global warming, to rising waters, to poverty, um, and you know I could go through this tremendous list. But New Orleans is seen as, as, as significantly different than every other place in the US. And when we begin to offer causes, for example, saying the Louisiana Purchase, that's also true of Duluth, Minnesota, and Dubuque, Iowa. Um, and so the causes uh, are not particularly robust the, that, that, we, that we locate. It may simply be easier and more effective um, to say, I feel different in New Orleans than I feel in other place, any other place on the planet. But that's also true of people who, who are partisans of Atlanta, and it's true of people who are partisans of New York. They feel differently in those cities than they feel here or anywhere else. And with the idea that um, the sort of myth, if you could say a little bit more about this myth that New Orleans is just simply not like mm. any other place, mm-hmm. um, is that entirely true? Is that the type of thing that is both true and untrue at the same time? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's like a myth that we live by, right? So I think about free will in the same way, right? That um, there is clearly no free will, and yet I have to exist in its in its framework in order to act, in order to uh, you know dress myself in the morning. And in order to dress myself on carnival morning, I have to believe in a little bit in New Orleans exceptionalism um, and in order to explain why I feel at home here and not anywhere else. New Orleans is both like every other place um, and unlike every other place. And it's like every place because of um, 
uh, neoliberal economic policy, right? That and disaster capitalism that emerges after Hurricane Katrina. Um, it's true. It's like every other place because of post-industrial economies. It's like every other place because of a starving waterfront. It's like every other place because of real estate boondoggles. It's like every other place um, in the South because of the unbelievable income inequality. And then it's unlike any of those places um, because of its relationship to um, resistant black politics, because of its relationship to kind of sexual license, because of its relationship to carnival, um, because of the, these connections, uh, because of the, you know, the kind of the rolling endless party of it. It's like and unlike any other place. And I think um, what I would argue about that um, is that every place is particular and no place is exceptional. For New Orleans, a lot of the popular narrative rests on the idea that, well, there were these waves of colonialism, mm -hmm. Spanish and French, and I think even I've read some more, uh, a little propagandist literature from the city that's like, because there was a Choctaw market where <laughs> the French market now sits, mm -hmm. that it's somehow in, endowed with transcendent mm -hmm. quality. So how does that particular colonial genealogy contribute to this narrative that the city has this different trajectory? I mean, one of the things that, that one of the myths um, that structures uh, how people talk about New Orleans are, are the, uh, the free people of color, the Haitian refugees who come after the Haitian Revolution. And there's this argument made that black New Orleanians who have always had a more political power than other black Southerners, um, and also less in different places, that it's because of that link to free people of color after the Haitian Revolution. But the fact of the matter is that black New Orleanians, the majority of black New Orleanians, the staggering majority of black New Orleanians got here the way that black Americans got to every other city in the US. They came here after slavery, during waves of migration, first the Exodusters, then the Great Migration, the vast majority of New Orleanians, black New Orleanians, can trace their lineage to Copia County, Mississippi, where they were tenant, were tenant farmers and enslaved agricultural workers. Um, so that, that group of people has always been a small group of people. So there was a period when essentially that 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 a lot of people write about, uh, a lot of people talk about. Uh, your tour guides in the French Quarter will always talk to you about this. Um, that there's a period when New Orleans is kind of 33, 33, 33. White people, free black people, and enslaved black people. That's a really short period. Um, and it's the period that dominates the imagination of um, New Orleans and Louisiana scholars and Gulf South scholars. Um, there's something therapeutic about New Orleans exceptionalism. Uh, for the for the internal exceptionalist, right? Um, it helps you to explain why you don't feel at, at home any other place in the world. Um, and I think for a lot of white Louisianans, and I don't want to stigmatize them too much, but I, I do want to note that despite the images of black political power and resistance from Mardi Gras Indians to bouncing to masking, everything, um, Despite that, uh, Louisiana is also a deeply conservative place, and the primary uh, the primary cultural contribution of the Louisiana suburbs is the career of David Duke. Right, so that's um, thanks for that, uh, Kenner. And um, so I think there's a great deal there's a kind of therapeutic move in saying we're a different kind of white, um, and it tends to happen around Louisiana, I'm sorry, around New Orleans, where there's really a circle of intense white flight around New Orleans. And when travelers come here, they see the French Quarter, 
They see the garden district, which are in many ways the gridded planned parts in the case of the French Quarter. And they don't see that we are a classic sprawl city with um, suburbs built into drain swamps that gave a lot of white people lawns. And there were a lot of covenant, there were some covenant communities that also gave a fair number of black people lawns. Um, but New Orleans has that those same cycles of white flight and flight outward that every other American city does. But the thing that we have that other people don't is a story about how special we are, even though even the white Louisianans. So there's a therapeutic value to this to these exceptionalisms. Um, and I'm sure I'll get some angry emails about that. This is something similar that other guests have talked about that this push to try to find something recoverable about Southern whiteness that rather than confronting and pushing through guilt, because I always say guilt is not a productive emotion, Mm -hmm. rather than actually working through those stages to just like step around it with Mm -hmm. some story of exceptionalism or some attachment to like nostalgic food way or Mm -hmm. some, it's just trying to step around a reckoning. And one of the places that we see it is in the use of the word Cajun, um, which has dramatically increased uh, in the last 30 years. The, a lot of the stigma that was once associated with Cajun as, as a virtual synonym for redneck um, or waste person or white trash or any of the number of other terms. Uh, and I think Nancy Eisenberg, Eisenberg's book, White Trash, is a useful kind of like look at, at how these kind of divisions between white people emerged. But there's been this exponential increase in, in self-identification as Cajun among people who are not Acadian, right? So I will encounter in Louisiana, and you can, you can easily have these encounters, of Irish and German settlers to Louisiana who call themselves Cajun, even though that's a historically specific term that does not mean them, right? Um, and I think it's a recoverable whiteness. Cajunness is a, is a recoverable whiteness. your work has talked about urban planning in New Orleans. Can you kind of walk us through the history of urban planning in New Orleans and how we can see the history of the city through planning policy and even the grid or seemingly lack thereof of a grid Mm. in certain spots in the city? Um, So New Orleans is founded, and I use the words in scare quotes when I'm talking to somebody who writes on the Native South, um, is founded in 1718, uh, really born with the founding generation of of American writers and thinkers, uh, white American writers and thinkers. And um, we are a peculiarly anti-urban nation. We have intense attachment to heartland, frontier, small town values, um, you know, nonsense. And one of the primary architects of that of that thinking is Thomas Jefferson, who of course affected the Louisiana Purchase. But um, he also said that cities, in his words, uh, to paraphrase him, um, had no more relationship to democracy than parasites had to the bodies of their hosts. Um, the mobs of great cities, as they put them. I mean, the notes on the state of Virginia, which is primarily famous for his kind of grotesque racism, in which he describes black people as not thinkers but mimics. Um, is also a deeply anti-urban text. And you can see Jefferson's anti-urbanism and the anti-urbanism of the founding generation in every American city. Um, and I think 
a grid to go to the to go to the question of the streets since when we think urban planning we think streets in a lot of different ways um a grid is a solution to a problem to environmental challenges to growth um and i'll use the example of of new york city you know founded in 1624 and then in 1811 the commissioner's plan grids out the streets that are above central park when you're in lower manhattan you can see a medieval dutch city um, a bunch of angles that you can navigate by foot and then on the grid you can see something that's more like closer to car culture even though it's kind of created in a period when trains carriages etc are using those roads um, and it regularizes streets right there are not many cities in the u.s that were planned and gridded as cities and those cities that were planned and gridded as cities are southern and i want to stress this savannah and new orleans sorry um Savannah and New Orleans are uh, two of the only planned cities in the U.S., and they are deeply southern places. Uh, D.C. is also planned, but it's planned to be empty. That's tied into the way that the D.C. is codified into, into the Constitution as a capital city that would be empty. Savannah and New Orleans, on the other hand, were planned as cities that would be flush and full of, of human bodies, um, slave markets and settlers. Um, you know, the army and merchants. And what you can see when you go into the French Quarter are these very regularized streets. Um, and Rampart Street was, of course, the walls of the city, um, where French soldiers would describe being able to look down from the walls of the city and see 24-foot alligators flopping on their bellies. Um, and uh, the, the street plan of the French Quarter has at its center, you know, the Cabildo and, um, and the Cathedral these places that were um, the seats of power. And then on its outskirts, uh, the, the French way of burying people on the borders of the city rather than in the center. That's the English way of burying people. Um, and then, you know, there's a, once outside of those, of that gridded place, um, whether it's in the Marigny or the Bywater or on the other side, the Lower Garden District and the Faubourg St. Mary, um, you can see plantations. There's also a presumed, and I particularly encounter this among my students when teaching um, about slavery, a presumed separation between plantations and cityscapes. Right. People always think of plantations as rural, like, rural space. And even our liberal hero mayor, who's just taken down our Confederate monuments, Mitch Landrieu, um, said this isn't, New Orleans is not just the site of black political power, it's also the place where black human bodies were sold in slave markets and brought to plantations the way he describes it as though people are essentially being taken out of the city rather than going like eight blocks um, to work on a sugar plantation um, and you can see that on the city grid because plantations were measured out in arpents um, a french unit of measurement um, about 0.84 acres um, the French Mississippi Company divides uh, these pieces of land based on river coverage, and Arpent has secure um, water coverage. And out from it is almost a triangular shape, um, that, and that triangular shape was the plantation. Often at the kind of tip of that triangle, you can see a plantation house um, in a number of different places, in Poland Avenue and the Bywater, um, Charters and Franklin in, uh, in the, in, um, the Marigny. And um, those triangular breaks in the street grid are just places where there were plantations. And if you go to those Arbon lines, you can see, in essence, that the plantation and the city are really imbricated. They're not separate at all. It is just as much the fabric of this urban space mm -hmm. as it is what people 
imagine is deeply rural, mm-hmm. far away places. Indeed. I mean, and, and Tulane student activists, when I taught there, would often say, as though it was a profound revelation, this is built on plantation land. A lot of urban space is plantation land. And a lot of, and, and even when it's not plantation land, it's still the site of slave labor. Enslaved people worked as clerks in hotels, as domestics in hotels. The most famous enslaved person in US history is Frederick Douglass, who was a Baltimore stevedore. So, you know, a lot of urban labor is enslaved labor. Plantation labor is not a particularly um, revealing or enlightening phrase. It doesn't tell us much about slavery. Right. What are other places moving from the 19th century in city planning where you can see other marks on how the city is dealing with issues of racial and class equality Mm. across the grid or even say how the interstates are dividing up the city? Mm. So it's, it's, um, I'm happy that you're asking me this question in my home because my home, this building is in many ways the history of New Orleans. Um, you know, we're a couple blocks out of Storyville, which was the site, uh, the red light district in New Orleans. Um, and there's a lot of excitement about that history among tourists, but they never actually come to my neighborhood, which is sort of the outskirts of it. Um, and it's also a place where there's a lot of contestation about what neighborhood I live in. Um, I'm four blocks above I-10 in an area that before the highway, people would have called the Treme. But once the highway is built there, once I-10 is built over Claiborne Avenue, um, there is a separation, a concrete separation between one half of the Treme and the other. Um, And so a lot of my older neighbors, you know, they don't recognize this as the Treme. That's what a real estate agent would call you, would call it if they were trying to sell you the house. Um, Many of my neighbors will simply call it the back of town um, because mid-city, which is north of us, uh, gentrified first. A lot of white people that I see walking around in the neighborhood will describe it as mid-city. So I see, I hear at least three different words, uh, just terms to describe this neighborhood. Treme, back of town, mid-city, and then some, sometimes Treme Lafitte because there was a housing development um, down on Orleans Avenue, which is about two blocks from me. Um, and after Katrina, um, municipal and state governments used the storm as an excuse to do away with public housing and to shift all public housing to a voucher system. So there are now mixed income developments where some people are buying, some people are renting, some people have highly subsidized apartments. Um, but there's nothing like what there was before the storm where someone could in, someone could rent a two-bedroom apartment for $120 a month um, and that provided a pretty stable uh, body of service workers the tourist industry who could walk quickly and easily to their jobs in the French Quarter. Um, it's, it's actually quite difficult if you live in this neighborhood to walk or bike down to the French Quarter because you run right into I-10 and often you run into the like, physical side of it, um, the concrete blocks uh, that prop it up, that, that elevate it. You know, when, I was, when we were looking at this house, my partner and I, um, we, were, we tr- tried to use, tried to develop kind of best practices of buying a house in New Orleans. And we had been here on and off. In my case, I'd been here on and off since 2003. And in his case, a little bit less. Um, but there were a couple things we wanted to do. We wanted to repair blight. We wanted to ensure that we did not displace renters. So we actually did not look at um, houses that were occupied um, because we didn't just want to say, you're going to be turned out because we're going to buy, buy this house and live in it. Um, and so we ended up in the house that we're in um, and worked really hard to integrate ourselves with the neighborhood, to ask people what they needed. And sometimes that was something that uh, feels big or feels small, like 
ceding part of our, our, our off-street parking to a handicapped parking space, right? Um, we were able to essentially just ask people, what can we do to be part of this community? Um, and in the case of my partner, who's just a useful man to have around, always with hammer and nails, um, sometimes it was boarding up blighted houses where, that people were breaking into, shooting up heroin, copper mining, things like that. Um, and, it's, uh, and what we found is that when you live in a neighborhood, when you want to live in a neighborhood, one of the most useful things to do is just ask people, what can I do to be part of this community? read a lot that one of the contributing factors to a lot of the contemporary New Orleans gentrification is what happens following Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about where do we see the lasting effects of Hurricane Katrina on the city and how the cityscape and landscape has changed physically and human geography wise following the storm. So there's often an instinct for travelers who want to know what the storm did. Um, there's an instinct to go to the Ninth Ward because it was there was so much spectacle there, right? It's where the levees failed, um, but the levees failed in a number of different places. They failed there and water hit houses the way a truck would hit a house. But there are places, other places like Lakeview and Gentilly where levees failed and then there was a kind of drip, drip, Trip, and that's a different kind of destruction. Um, but in the Ninth Ward, uh, you know, houses came down fairly quickly. It is difficult to see the effects of the storm in the Ninth Ward because of the presumed tension between the city and the wilderness. So people will go out to those blocks of the Ninth Ward and they'll see beautiful high grasses, lush trees, they'll hear a bird sound, and they'll think, oh, this isn't so bad. But what they're seeing is a neighborhood that's not very dense they're looking at a neighborhood that used to be the densest in the city. Um, so I think in, in some ways, because we think of city and wilderness as, as in tension with one another, it's hard to see destruction in places that look like wilderness. But what you can see when you're driving through New Orleans or walking through New Orleans, and I highly endorse walking as epistemology, walking as a way of learning a city, um, what you can see is you can still see vacancy, abandonment, and blight. Some of that predates the storm. Um, because of a post-industrial cityscape, there's always a high level of vacancy. Um, you can also see a more integrated cityscape. Um, and some of that is gentrification. Though gentrification is a word I always use with an asterisk in New Orleans. We use it in different ways in different cities. And what people tend to mean here is non-native, um, an, an influx of non-natives into the city. Um, so you, yes, you see more integrated space. You see less public housing. You see the privatization of institutions, like schools um, and public housing. And I think some of what happens is that when institutions fail, um, there is one public institution that swells as others recede, and that's the prison industrial um, prison industrial complex. complex. Yes. <laughs> How did I lose that word? Right. So when, our, when, when um, mental health facilities go away, we put schizophrenics in jail. When schools fail, we put children in jail. Um, and you know, we could really go through the list. When public housing fails, we put the homeless in jail. Um, and so of course, one of the things we have in Louisiana, we're the capital of incarceration. 
the largest municipal jail in the U.S. is here in New Orleans, um, proportionally speaking. Um, and so I think one of the things, too, we see is the privatization of public institutions um, and the swelling of the prison as a solution to social problems. Are there other, um, in addition to the humans that we see and don't see in the city and the way that public and private institutions have responded, um, do we see marks on the physical landscape about how the city is arranged mm. or in terms of how the city has responded with its infrastructure? Has there been any address of the infrastructure of New Orleans in a large-scale way since the storm and the failure of infrastructure? Well, um, Hurricane Isaac uh, happened my first year at Tulane, and there was a great deal of relief, a big sigh of relief, because the levees held. And we actually had more direct rainfall during Hurricane Isaac than we did during Katrina. Uh, I'm not going to say the levees are fixed, that, That's I, because then the next time there's a hurricane, someone will play this back to me, and I'll cry disconsolately. But um, I'd highly recommend everyone take a look. Uh, Harry Shearer of The Simpsons and um, This is Spinal Tap made a great documentary um, right after Katrina called The Big Uneasy about potential solutions to our water, our, our water problem in New Orleans. And one of the things that he proposed was um, canals. It's how they keep the Netherlands dry. And we do not do that in Louisiana. We try and hold water back behind retaining walls rather than running it through cities. Uh, canal Street, which is the end of the French Quarter, is named Canal Street because it used to be a canal. Um, we don't have that relationship to water use anymore. Um, Orleans Avenue also used to be a canal. You know, really down through the list, there are plenty of places where there could be canals. And often when you get out to the suburbs, and the New Orleans suburbs are for the most part drain swamps where we built ranch houses, you'll see a, a number of canals that are there to sort of keep those places dry. They would be useful in the city as well, despite the fact for the most part, the core of the city is above sea level. There have two things have been in the news a lot this past week, and um, listeners will probably probably be a month after this conversation. So who knows what will be in the news <laughs> in a month? Will we even still be here? Can you hear us, <laughs> dear future? Um, but one, the current administration's pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm. We'll table that. The other thing that is all over the news is your mayor pulling down these Confederate monuments across the city in response to how people determine the meaning of public art. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about this moment in New Orleans, um, the city's decision, what's the significance of the decision to remove these monuments, and what is this doing, and how is it going to change the history of the city? Mm. Yeah, I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll address global warming first and only to table it. Okay. Um, which That's is, what I did too. Okay. Which is, yeah. Which is to say, like, I want to talk about global warming. I want to talk about rising waters, but I want to talk about it in your city, not in my city, because we have a, an intense desire to talk about it and point to New Orleans and say, look, 
that city, uh, as one of my, you know, some of my uh, my relatives and friends and acquaintances. Let's let's go with Facebook acquaintances um, who are not here. Think that we should all be marched to the borders of the city and told to live somewhere else. If you're going to tell that to the city of New Orleans, you better tell it to the city of New York as well, because that island is a bunch of dredged landfill from the Hudson and East Rivers dragged out to build up that island, to double it in size. And you saw that during Hurricane Sandy because of the places that were built up from dredging were the places that flooded. And of course, in New Orleans, they dredged Pontchartrain to twice its original depth to aid the oil and gas industry um, and to aid the cotton industry when it existed because that's, of course, old dredging. So I'm going to say I want to talk about global warming, but I want to talk about it in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, down through the list, because it's not just going to affect here. It's going to affect everyone listening. Um, presumably, they're not already up to their eyeballs in water. So I'm going to table that um, and go to the Confederate monuments. Um, New Orleans buckles under the weight of more than one nationalism. Nationalism is a series of myths. And if you go to Midtown Manhattan, you can get out of the subway and see a statue of Columbus on land that he never set foot on. Right? Columbus never set foot on this landmass. And Robert E. Lee never set foot in the city of New Orleans. And yet there's he, he stood in Lee Circle, which in many ways divides uptown and downtown. Uh, some people say Canal Street, some people say the highway. I'd say Lee Circle. Um, and one of the things I think the statue of Robert E. Lee did in that particular place was to say, um, you're American, you're Southern, and it's an imposition of those logics onto this place, which always resists and plays with and, and toys with them at the same time. And those other statues, whether it's Beauregard or Jefferson Davis, they produce a solid South where there was never solidity. Um, Mitchell Andrew has done a good job, I think, of pointing out that the Confederacy accounts for 18 months of the city's 400-year history. And that to have this intense footprint of the Confederacy on our physical landscape um, produces, in essence, a story that was never quite our story. And I think he's done a bad job of filling those pedestals. Um, it's an interesting thing to drive around and see empty pedestals the way you would see in Budapest after the end of after the fall of the Soviet Union. What, if any, are articulated plans for the pedestals? I mean, I have not heard any good plans. I'd give it all to Kara Walker. But what you can see if you drive around now, and when we pulled back into the city after the, for the first time after uh, Jefferson Davis came down, we just saw quite a lot of Confederate flags popping up around it, right? So I think um, as long as they're empty, uh, they're useful. for They're very useful uh, to the people who wanted Davis there in the first place, who wanted Davis to remain. Right. It's sort of the absence that speaks volumes mm -hmm. and it gives the vacuum for an explosion of all sorts of other reprehensible behavior and ideology and it enables them to say landrew ablated our history because there's just nothing there right um when in fact he keeps saying it's in defense of new orleans history that they've been taken down we'll prove it yeah. put something else there mm -hmm. i sort of have this nightmare vision where it just becomes like repeating statues of andrew jackson <laughs> right yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, and it goes to the question of Southern exceptionalism. When the Confederate flag came down in South Carolina, where I more or less grew up, um, I sobbed tears of joy because I distinctly remembered a protest when I was at University of South Carolina where somebody was arrested for burning the Confederate flag. I remembered it coming down from the dome of the state house and going to state house grounds and seeing it taken down was a moment of real joy and hope for me. Um, a moment where, as Seamus Heaney says, where hope and history rhyme. Um, and there's, there's, there's great pleasure in that. At the same time, there was another part of me that thought like, man, if we're gonna take down the Confederate flag, we'd better go shred the Massachusetts flag, which has an image of a native person on it saying, come over and help us, right? And now they've replaced it with something something nicer, but the old flags had come over and help us. And they, it still has the image of the native on it. He just, he's just no longer, you know, making it so explicit. Um, so we're going to have to take some, some flags down, right? Or we're going to have to put up some context plaques, as we say, on University of Mississippi campus that explain why that exists in the first place. Um, but I think there is a conversation about that in the South that there isn't in other places. There's a conversation about that with the Civil War that there isn't necessarily about Andrew Jackson, despite the fact, you know, he's the only president that we know personally drove a slave coffle down the Natchez Trace, right? Um, and I might've taken him down first. Um, but we need to have conversations, not just about the region, regional symbols, but about the national ones as well, not just about Southern history, but American history. Um, and of course, in some ways, public intellectuals need to push in Southern exceptionalism in order to make that happen. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to check out Jenny's book, Blood at the Root. You can find a link on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at aboutsouthpod. This week's episode was produced by Kelly Vines. Ajoa Danso is also co-producer, and Lindsay Baker directs our social marketing. Music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. We'll see you next week. I, I would say anyone who is listening to About South right now who has the Nextdoor app in, um, loaded onto their smartphone, delete it now. Uh, it's a tool of surveillance. Um, if you have French Quarter Defender, which is it French Quarter Defender that enables you to track people? French Quarter, French Quarter Task Force enables you to track people down in the quarter as well. Usually just people who are like panhandling. Um, just delete those things from your phone. They're tools of surveillance. And moreover, Taurus, if I'm going to get hustled for change, you're going to get hustled for change. Like you don't have the absolute right not to be hustled for change just because you're on vacation. So. Mm-hmm.